This evening, we're going to be looking at issues facing the church. And let me point out right up front, this is one of those topics that I could easily spend an entire quarter talking about all the various issues. So if you came tonight thinking that you were going to get everything, let me just go ahead and bust that bubble for you right now. I just grabbed a couple, and we're going to focus in on those. In order to see what we're doing, why we're doing it, I want us to take just a moment, look back at where we have been together over the last roughly month. You know, during the past month, we have looked at issues like pride. We've talked about worldliness. We've talked about things like a Christian worldview, meekness, and self-control. All of these issues, when you when you stop and you look at what we're doing, ultimately what we're doing is we're focusing on your heart. We're spending time looking at how do we transform ourselves away from the world, away from, from what Satan wants us to be, and instead to walk in that narrow path. Because ultimately, when you think about it for just a moment, what we have to do is wake up every single day and ask ourselves, am I going to walk that Christian walk, or am I just going to slide back out on the broad way? Ultimately, what I hope has happened over the last 20 plus days is that you've kind of got tunnel vision about a Christian worldview. Tunnel vision about focusing your attention on Him rather than on yourself. Because it takes practice. The world, our culture is trying very, very hard to divert your attention away from Christ, to basically take your eyes off of God and to put them firmly on yourself. And let's be honest for just a moment. We actually like that, don't we? When you look around at all the different things, we got entire pages about ourselves. We basically think that even people want to know what we're eating. And yet, the reality is, what happens is that mentality eventually slips into what we're doing here. The idea that it's all about me, that it's all about my wants and And my opinion, folks, we're seeing this lived out on the news almost every single day where this person gets their feelings hurt and so they lash out. And this person feels like their opinion wasn't high enough esteemed, so they get mad and everybody's fighting with everybody and nobody is humble enough to say, you know what, there's a God bigger than all of this. So as we think about it, Consider what happens when that attitude slips into worship. What happens when worship is no longer about God, but rather it's all about us and our desires? I've told you guys before, in my mailbox, I constantly am getting ads, catalogs, brochures about how to make worship more entertaining. And let's be honest for a minute, there's a lot of people buying into that. As a result of all of this, as a result of this inward focus, as a result of us worrying more about ourselves, we got some issues in the church, don't we? What are some of those issues? Well, let's think about it for just a moment. We got things like 
women's role. Is that an issue in the church today? Or what about things like apathy or or evangelism, homosexuality? I, I told you guys, this would be one of those that I could talk about for an entire quarter. But at the end of the day, here's the situation. Most of these issues, what they really are is about taking our eyes off of God and what He wants and instead focusing on what we want. And instead of everything being based about truth, it starts to be based on emotion. If you were to look up what are some of the issues of the church, it's interesting. Basically, across the board, whether we're talking about denominations or whether we're talking about the New Testament church, they sound very similar. I grabbed this off of Lifeway. They did a survey. You notice they talk about worship, the struggle to incorporate traditional or contemporary modes of worship, marriage and family, evangelism, homosexuality, apathy, pornography, doctrine, all of these things. We then did a a little quick online survey on our own website, and we started getting some of the same exact type of answers. That basically we've got things like apathy or materialism or or lack of Bible knowledge. So over and over what we're seeing is what's going on all around us is creeping into the church. So as we talk about issues of the church, the very first question that I need to ask you is, how do we determine what is right and what is wrong? You know, what do we use as our guide? Because let's be honest for just a moment, we are embroiled right now in a culture that thinks it's basically all about who can shout the loudest or who is the most passionate about their feelings. Well, folks, let me tell you something. Christians should not be making decisions based on their feelings, on their emotions. You see, we got people out there, some believe that man is the measure of all things, that ultimately... As Protagoras said, you know, we should be the ones to get to decide what is right and what is wrong. There are a couple of problems with that. First problem is, this would imply that some acts are right, even if what I think is right may be cruel or hateful to you. Is that a problem? Yeah. Ultimately, this idea, it would destroy a community. And this is what we're seeing in places like Charlottesville. Because you've got this group that thinks they're right and this group that thinks they're right. There's another group of people out there that say basically, you know what, right is whatever brings pleasure. Whatever makes everybody happy, anything painful, they would say, is wrong. Now again, a couple of problems with this. Number one, not all pleasures are good. And not all pain is bad. We, we've grown up thinking that pain is bad, but the reality is it's not in all cases. Number two, what kind of pleasure should be used as the test? And last but not least, are we talking about immediate pleasure, like earthly pleasure, or are we talking about heaven? Because that's a pretty big difference. Number three, some believe that right is anything that is done in moderation. Well, you know, we we can do a little bit as long as we don't go overboard. 
This is from Aristotle, who basically took this approach. But again, there's problems with this kind of an approach. While moderation is often good, is it actually a measure of morality? Is moderation actually a measure of what's right and wrong? The answer is no. Second, who gets to determine what's moderate? My wife's definition of a moderate bowl of ice cream and my definition are a little different. We got two different size bowls in our cabinet. We got these little bitty things that shouldn't even be called bowls, and then we got some serious bowls. To me, that's, you know, that's moderate because it's not like it's a big Tupperware bowl that's like a salad bowl. But my wife may be thinking, you know, ice cream, unhealthy, too much sugar, one scoop is enough. Folks, one scoop of ice cream, that's just an appetizer where I'm coming from. So again, who gets to decide? Some would say might is right, and that's how we should basically determine what is true, what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is evil. Basically, whoever has the power, whoever is the the one who is reigning, lots and lots of problems with this. When you look back in history, there have been people like Nero, Stalin, who they were the mighty, but they weren't right. Folks, just because we are maybe a superpower, or just because there is the majority doing something, doesn't make it right. How about this one? There's some out there that think we should base our view on everything as to whether it's the greatest good for the most number of people. So uh, as long as we're making decisions that are going to please the most people, then that's good. But again, that's not a definition of morality. Basically what you're doing, you're pleasing the masses. You're not explaining is this Good and bad. Also, it relies on people knowing the future because if you're saying, hey, we should be allowing this, we should pass this law. We should allow this in the church. Basically, you're claiming to know the future because you're saying, hey, we believe this is going to really be good for everybody. Last but not least, there are some out there that throw all that to the wind and say, you know what? Man, it is not in man to direct his steps. Good is what God wills. And so if we're going to talk about things like issues facing the church, then what we got to do is we got to get rid of what the majority might say, or we got to get rid of what feelings might say, or we got to get rid of all of this other stuff, and we got to zone in on what does God say? What is God's will? And only then can we really truly make decisions about what is right. I teach a a Christian ethics class where I I keep bringing people back to, it doesn't matter what you feel, doesn't matter what you think about it, doesn't matter what your grandparents taught you about it, it matters what God's Word says. Because God's Word is truth. We must sanctify them by the truth. So understand as we... 
As we look at a couple of issues facing the church, here's what I want you to do. I want you to set your feelings and emotions aside. In fact, let me give you a couple of verses to chew on as you're thinking about that. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, the Bible says, The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? Proverbs 28, verse 26 says, He who trusts his own heart is a fool, but whoever walks wisely will be delivered. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 23, O Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. I just mentioned John chapter 17, verse 17. Sanctify them by your truth. Thy word is truth. So that's what we're going to use as our yardstick as we talk about these issues facing the church. The first one is probably right now one of the more controversial ones. What about women's role in worship? To to set the stage, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to play a a little bit of a video for you, and please understand, you guys have have heard me long enough to know, I I don't normally ever show videos. The reason I'm going to show you this little portion of a video, though, is because it makes the point a whole lot better than I ever could. This is from a congregation about eight miles from my home congregation in Franklin, Tennessee. This is a special day in the life of this church. For uh, a long time, we've talked about the way we value women here and the way we believe Scripture values women. And it wasn't that long ago that Lipscomb called and said, we've got somebody that wants to be a preaching major but needs to have an internship. And I said, send her. So, Lauren, come on up. This is our preaching intern who's about to... Yes. Look at that. Look at that. I grew up at Royal Hill Church of Christ in, in like Antioch, Nashville address. And then my dad is now the preacher at Donaldson Church of Christ. And so I went to Lipscomb, not as a Bible major, as a communications major. And the Lord made it very clear that he wanted me to do youth ministry. So I started majoring in Bible with an emphasis in youth ministry and did, I've done three youth internships. The Lord also made it clear, um, through a lot of discernment, through a lot of prayer, that I was supposed to pick up a preaching emphasis along with my youth ministry emphasis, and the people at Lipscomb have been so supportive of that. I love the Church of Christ heritage. It's the people that raised me um, and the people that have taught me everything I know about the Lord. And so it has been really cool for me to learn, because in the beginning, all of this would have been really uncomfortable, too. And so it's been really cool to learn alongside my family and my, my spiritual family and my communities. A lot of the ways that I've been perceiving the Lord's voice is through having peace when I walk through open doors. If I have an unpeaceful heart, then that's not really where I'm supposed to be. But if I'm in a place where I have peace about where I'm going, then that's that's the Lord telling me yes um, for a lot of the times for me. So if she has peace, that's she knows that's where she's supposed to go. I find that very ironic given the fact that Paul was beaten, he was shipwrecked, he was, I mean... Paul wasn't at peace very much. You know, if Paul's idea of I should be here because I feel peace, then guess what? The gospel wouldn't have gone out like it did. We look at Luke chapter 6, verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Fourth Avenue is a congregation of about 800 members. 
There's a, a, a call made from Lipscomb. They need some congregation to sponsor a preaching intern. They're giving somebody a major in ministry. And it's a female. And we open up the Bible and we read passages like this. 1 Timothy chapter 2. If you got your Bible, let me encourage you to open there. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. I've heard lots and lots of millennials say, you know, the whole ladies being silent thing, that's cultural, Brad. You need to get with the times. Especially these days, now that we're kind of in the heart of, of radical feminism, folks are saying, you know, gender equality, everybody ought to have their opportunity. But before I buy into your argument, let me just pose this little question to you. Did Paul give a reason of why ladies were to be silent in this passage? The answer? Absolutely he did. He goes and he says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Then he goes on to talk about who was deceived. Let me ask you a follow-up question. Has Paul's reasoning changed? The answer? No. I mean, when you look at why he said that, folks, that goes above this argument of cultural. In fact, take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14, starting in verse 34. Paul said, Let your women keep silent in churches, for they're not to be permitted to speak, but they're to be submissive, as the law also says. If they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in the church. Now, I bring this up as an issue facing the church, and a lot of you in this room are thinking, this is not that big a deal. I mean, you know, we're not going to have Sister Sally up there on Sunday morning. And let me ask you this. Is it possible that this is a much bigger movement than you think it is? Because had I played out the whole video, one of the things that Lauren says in her Thing, two things that she points out. Number one, that she feels that she has talents and that God would want her to use her talents. And number two, that this is a movement that's happening in the church. When I heard her say that, I started doing what I always do. Did a little research and I found websites like this where Pepperdine made a, a recent announcement that they'd hired a new chaplain who's a woman. But not just Pepperdine. We then looked Lo and behold, there are groups like One Voice. One Voice for Change, a movement seeking gender equality in the churches of Christ. Or how about this group? Galatians 3.28. Galatians 3.28, that is, there is no longer male or female for all are one in Christ Jesus. Or how about this group that you probably didn't know about called Half the Church. Half the church is talking about the fact that women are being excluded. Or how about this one, CBE International. CBE, Christians for Biblical Equality, is a nonprofit organization of Christian men and women who believe that the Bible, properly interpreted, 
teaches the fundamental equality of men and women, all ethnic groups, all economic classes, age groups based on the teaching of Scripture. Or how about a community without barriers? Do I think that this is a movement? By the way, do you know where most of these groups are located? On college campuses. And folks, let me tell you something. They are recruiting your sons and your daughters right out from under your nose. You send your kid off to school and that's great and they're being educated. At the same time, they're also involved in all kinds of of clubs and activities and groups. And they come home at spring break wanting to know, why are mom and dad still in that stuffy old church that doesn't let ladies do anything? Okay, well, let's look a little bit deeper. If we're going to have a conversation about this, there's a couple of questions that we need to address. Some things that maybe you and I should talk to our children and grandchildren about. Like, number one, could Jesus have been a priest or a high priest? What do you think? Take a look at this text. Hebrews chapter 7, starting in verse 13. If you've got your Bibles, open up there. For he of whom these things are spoken, talking about Jesus, he belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning the priesthood. According to the old law, only Levites could be priests. Correct? And yet, Jesus came through the lineage of Judah. So according to the old law, could he be a priest? Answer, no. Now, let's follow up that question with this. Anybody in this room think that Jesus was not a talented speaker? Or or he wasn't a good teacher? Folks, I would argue with you that he was the master teacher. He was the kind of person who he would drop things in and you would spend hours thinking about that, that one little phrase. He was very talented. He was very skilled. And yet, let me ask you, did he try to play that as his trump card? Did he say, you know, it's not fair. I should be able to be a priest because I'm a masterful teacher. The answer, no. And so as you think about that, consider for just a moment, we got some ladies in this room who are very talented we got ladies who can sing extremely well. we got late, most of the ladies in here can sing a whole lot better than the men. I didn't get any amens on that. Y'all should have been amening. we got ladies who are great at organizing things. we got ladies who can speak. And yet, we look at Jesus. And we realize Jesus was not permitted to serve as an Israelite priest while he was on this earth. Why? Because of something beyond his control, namely his status at birth. He was not of the tribe of Levi. So did he stomp his feet and get mad? Did he try to change the law himself and say, you know what, this isn't fair. This is, we got to get with the time. 
or did he humble himself and serve? You know, when, when our daughters are asking, hey, can, can I go off to, to so-and-so school? I, I, want, to, I want to be a, a, a preacher. Maybe what we really should be asking is not, can you preach? Maybe we should be asking, do you possess the attitude of Christ? Because folks, let's be honest. Males or females can get up behind a pulpit and say words. But the question is, are you willing to humble yourself and do what we've been told to do? I mean, when you look at how radical feminism has altered us, I guarantee you right now in this room, there's at least one or two in the millennial generation who's sitting here listening to me thinking to themselves, I don't like that guy very much. And yet, it's not me they really have a problem with. It's the text. Because again, we look back at Paul and Paul says, hey, they're not supposed to talk and here's why. Because Adam was formed first, then Eve... Adam wasn't deceived, but Eve was. So as we think about how that's creeping into the church, let me just ask this simple question. Should our colleges and universities that are associated with the church, should they even be offering ministry degrees to females? The answer to that is a resounding no. And oh, by the way, if they are, maybe we should start holding them accountable. Because at the end of the day, just like we've been talking about pride and worldliness and and meekness and all these things being a heart issue, at the end of the day, it's probably a heart issue. When one of our young ladies declares that she wants to be a preacher, ask yourself, what what should be the response of the elders? Or, Or what should the minister do or say in response? Or what what about her parents? Or what about you as her fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? Because ultimately, here's what I hope. I hope that your desire for everybody in this room to go to heaven transcends somebody's feelings and opinion about what they want to do. You guys know that I sometimes get a little personal, so let's ask it. How well are you educating your young people, even here at Winchester, on this topic? Because I suspect right now you've already sent off people to colleges where they're being introduced to some of these groups and this movement and these clubs, and you didn't even know it. So one of the issues that we got to face and we got to talk about is women's roles. Well, what about another issue? What about something that is in the news almost every single week, and that is this idea of homosexuality, same-sex marriage, transgender movement, gender-neutral bathrooms, all of those kinds of things. Some of you read this several years back. Previous administrations said, gay rights are more important than religious freedom. And as a result, what have we seen? We've seen bakers who were facing prison time. Why? Was it because of some violent crime that they broke? It's because they wouldn't bake a cake. 
That's ironic to me. Because if you were to ask a Muslim baker to do the same thing, you know what he'd do? He would refuse. You realize Muslims over in the Middle East, they still practice capital punishment for the sin of sodomy. They will either throw them off of a building or they stone them. And yet we see photographers facing prison for refusing to take pictures of couples. So we got bakers, we got photographers, we got florists who are facing lawsuits because they won't provide flowers for a same-sex wedding. We got florists, bakers, photographers. Okay, let me just point out, for those of you who are keeping track, hopefully you are, there's not that many more people involved in a wedding except one. And that would be the preacher. Christian preacher arrested for saying that homosexual behavior is a sin. Oh, that's not going to happen, Brad. Maybe you ought to talk to some folks in places like Utah or Idaho, where in fact they are already under the gun for hate speech. These are preachers who are literally facing jail time. So do I think that this is an issue that's facing the church? Yeah. In fact, I think that eventually this is going to be one of those issues where they say, hey, if you continue to speak out against this, we're going to take away your tax-deductible status. We're going to make you a, a, a... Your members won't be able to give contributions and take it off their income tax. And we're going to have to make a decision about what we do. You guys have heard me talk about the fact that books have been mailed free of charge to every elementary school across the nation. These were the first two. We're up to 32 now. 32 books promoting same-sex marriage. We're now promoting transgenderism to five-year-olds. Folks, let me tell you something. I studied neurology. That's my background. When you're planting that kind of seed in the heart and mind of a five-year-old, that should be considered child abuse because you are permanently damaging that child in ways that it will take years to unravel. I am going to show you just kind of as a reminder, a couple of pages out of Daddy's Roommate. Because again, I want you to to know what's really going on in the libraries of our school. You got a little boy, he says, my mommy and daddy got a divorce last year. Now there's somebody new at daddy's house. Daddy and his roommate Frank live together, sleep together. Mommy says daddy and Frank are gay. First, I didn't know what that meant, so she explained it. Being gay is just one more kind of love, and love is the best kind of happiness. Daddy and his roommate are very happy together. And I'm happy too. Folks, let me just point out to you. First off, that's wicked. Second off, that is not a biblical definition of love. Now, if I were to ask you, do you think there's any possibility that the church is falling for this? I mean, surely this is not an issue that that we've got to worry about, right? Oh, yeah. 
we do. Let me take you back a couple of years where the Abilene Reporter came out. Now, Abilene, Texas, some of you guys know there is a school there. It's one of our schools. So Abilene, Texas, one of the professors from one of our schools, he comes out and he says, hey, this is a perversion. And oh, by the way, if we allow it, there's going to be other things to follow. Now, I think most everybody in this room would probably agree with Arlie Hoover's article on the screen behind me. I'm not going to read it word for word, but I'll sum it up this way. He basically says, look, if we allow this, we're going to have things like pedophilia. We're going to have incest. All these other perversions will follow. And yet, just a few short days later, there was another editorial. In that same paper by other professors at Abilene Christian University. Let me read this one to you. It says, not the voice of ACU. Daryl Tippin says, it is important that readers of this newspaper know that Dr. Arlie Hoover spoke only for himself in his November 12th guest column concerning homosexuality. He did not speak for Abilene Christian University, and most certainly he did not speak for Wayne Barnard, Angela Brenton, Tom Lemons, and myself, his colleagues, and his co-workers. We wish to express our personal disappointment with Dr. Hoover's intemperate remarks. In particular, we're pained that persons sincerely struggling with sexual issues in their lives might have felt insulted and demeaned and therefore less willing to seek help, to communicate with people of faith about the matter. We are grieved that young Christians struggling with same-sex attraction might feel injured by his remarks. Our view is that we're all created in the divine image and therefore deserving a profound respect. For those dealing with various sexual issues, and for those who have loved ones who are, may we say that compassion and understanding characterize most members of our academic community. Let me just point out to you, you can't get much more politically correct than that right there. I mean, that is just dripping with political correctness. And to some of you in this room, it sounds really good. And the reason it sounds really good is because even though we don't talk about it very often, there is that 11th commandment, right? You know, that 11th commandment, we got to always be nice and not confront anybody. Which, by the way, that 11th commandment, most of the time, trump all those other commands. Yeah, I realize we're under a new law, but let me just point out, we still obey that 11th command. You got to be nice. No matter what, got to be nice. Okay, well, let, let, me, let me just share with you very quickly a couple of Bible passages. Leviticus 18, verse 22, you should not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Do not defile yourselves with any of these things, for by all these the nations are defiled, which I'm casting out before you. For the land is defiled, therefore I visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it, and the land vomits out its inhabitants. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13, if a man lies with a male as he lies with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. Romans chapter 1, verse 26 and following. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use 
what is against nature. Likewise also, men leaving the natural use of women, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. Now let's get back to that letter for just a minute. Two questions. Question number one. Were God's remarks in Scripture intemperate, insulting, and demeaning? And did the original hearers of His Word feel injured by His remarks? And question number two. Do these Christian college professors think that they have more compassion and understanding than God? Because folks, listen to me. I ain't seen them put their children on a cross for your sins and mine. It's easy to write an op-ed piece to the editor and, and make ourselves sound just so warm and easy and politically correct and nice. The question is, are we willing to actually take a stand for the truth? Whether we're in Winchester, whether we're in Idaho, whether we're in California, are we willing to stand up and say, you know what, there are some things that our Creator, Almighty God, the one who was responsible for the eclipse this week, that one, there are some things that He says are an abomination. There are some things that He has said in Scripture He hates. And while I love you and your soul, I cannot allow that to be seen as acceptable. That's what it's all about. Because ultimately, you got folks here who are arguing the fact that, you know what? We're more compassionate than everybody else. If we are genuine people, will we treat homosexuals the right way? Absolutely. Do I want them to be saved? Absolutely. Do I want to welcome them into this building? You better believe it. Just like I do the alcoholic, just like I do the the thief, the prideful, the greedy. And here's the funny thing. Everybody in this room, you got your own baggage. And yet, that's why we're here. Because we can't save ourselves. And so, as I look at sins, whether we're talking homosexuality, whether we're talking greed, whether we're talking pride, whether we're talking covetous, you know what? We all need to hear the truth. And what, what about those folks that say, well, you know, but, but Brad, they, they love each other. I would ask this. How are we defining love? Because I'm not going to let you just steal it. I, I'm not going to let you take the argument away from the one who frames everything, and that is God. Because according to the text, God is love. And therefore... I'm not going to let you use that word loosely. Not only is God love, according to 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, you look a chapter later, 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, for this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. His commandments are not burdensome. John chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. Romans chapter 13, verse 10, love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is what? 
Love is the fulfillment of the law. Now, if you want to stand up and say, but Brad, they have lust for each other and they're emotionally involved in this relationship, I'll let you say that. But don't say love. Because according to the text, love is the fulfillment of the law. God is love. You see what happens when we pull our emotions out of the situation and instead of just just arguing with our passions... We just open up Scripture and we say, you know what? This is how the church needs to answer this. I mentioned to you I could have put a whole lot more and hopefully you could see from my PowerPoint, there were, I got a bunch more slides. We could talk about things like apathy. Is apathy an issue of the church? I should see heads doing this unless you're asleep, in which case I'm going to point at you and say, there's the problem. Or what about biblical ignorance? Is that a problem? Yeah. All of these things, though, should be addressed and answered the same way. And that is through the truth of God's Word. Not through pride, not through emotion, not through your feelings, but rather through the pages of God's Word. Again, next Wednesday, God is alive. Let me encourage you, be right here and bring somebody with you.